Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Over the course of this global crisis in which various forms of isolation have become the new norm, it's critical that we continue to organise in our communities to overcome these challenges that are presented because of coronavirus. And that's why Dunn Street has partnered with organisations across Australia and the globe to train leaders, develop engagement strategies and empower people to organise in their own communities. And if you want to find out how you can do that, you can contact us at dunnstreet.com.au. And hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left political and cultural podcast that dives into the progressive issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And on this week's episode, we are rejoined by the former White House press sec for President Obama's re-election campaign and now a Democratic strategist, Ben LeBolt. We had Ben on um, in December, which feels like years ago now. Um, but he's on today to talk about, we've got him on the line from his home in San Francisco, California, to talk about the Trump administration and their response to the coronavirus and to deep dive into what's going on in the United States at the moment. If you've been living under a rock, it's not going well. So we've got Ben on today to have a bit of a chat about that and also talk a little bit about um, what that will mean, what Trump's response or his poor handling of it will mean in November. Speaking of November, obviously we've been doing a lot of podcasts recently with the uh, Democratic primary campaign, which seems to have come to a bit of a halt because of the spread of the pandemic in the United States. Not that wise to get a whole bunch of people together and go vote, although Wisconsin did their best to make sure that did happen. Um, and those podcasts have been conducted in conjunction with a good friend of mine, uh, former colleague, uh, former Obama organizer in Sam Schneidman. And Sam, uh, as you all know, that have listened to the podcast, uh, is a resident of Brooklyn, New York. Um, and we've received some lovely messages from our most loyal listeners asking how Sam is going um, and obviously showing genuine concern uh, for him, which I greatly appreciate. Um, and I can tell you that Sam is uh, going well. He's okay. Um, and he sends his love to everyone in Australia that listens to the show and indeed, to everyone around the world that listens to the show. I was actually looking at our stats the other day. 15% of our audience actually is from the United States, uh, which is interesting. Anyway, uh, before we get to today's episode, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Actually, I just realized that last sentence where I just humble bragged about how many people listen to our podcast in America was actually quite quite Trumpy, Trumpy of me to do. Um, I don't know if you know this. Um, anyway... Sorry, I apologize for that. Um, yes, what was I saying? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And if you do listen to it on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and leave us a review. And to follow us for all the updates about the podcast or indeed anything that's coming out of Dunn Street, um, just follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Let's get to today's episode. Okay, we're taping this one on a Monday morning in uh, East Coast of Australia and on the line from San Francisco, California, um, we are joined by Ben LeBolt, who is a Democratic strategist and partner at uh, Bully P- Pulpit Interactive. 
Um, but we've had Ben on the show before, so it's great to welcome him back onto Social Democratic. Ben, how are you this morning or this evening? Uh, I'm I'm not doing too bad. Uh, how are you, Stephen? Thanks for having me on. Uh, all things considered, uh, good. Um, happy Easter to you and to uh, everyone else in the state who are listening to today's uh, episode. I wanted to get you on uh, to talk a bit about uh, the experience of COVID-19 coronavirus from the United States. I think that in Australia at the moment, we seem to have some of the statistics that we're getting from our experts that I don't know if the curve is flattening, but our numbers aren't as big as they have been in parts of Western Europe um, and in China and in the United States. But I think it's worthwhile our Australian audience having a conversation with someone in the United States to talk about the impact that it is having in the US. And I just thought it'd be worthwhile getting you on uh, over this Easter long weekend to talk to you a bit about that. And I don't want to bury the lead because the lead really is about how badly the, the Trump administration has been handling this um, pandemic. But before we do dig into that, I just want to get a sense about um, what is the American experience thus far? Just give us some numbers. What ha- has happened in the t- in the time since the first recording of um, the virus being contracted by an American citizen back in January? Um, what has been the devastating impact that has plagued the major cities across the United States? Well, it, it's been totally shocking and I think called into question everything we believed it meant to be an American. Um, we've never seen anything like this in our lifetimes. And, you know, the job of the president of the United States is to keep Americans secure. And he's not done that. We're seeing more than a thousand deaths a day. Um, you're seeing hundreds of deaths a day in New York City alone. Um, more than 20,000 Americans have now died. Um, that's uh, many times the deaths we saw uh, on 9-11, which until now had been the formidable political experience of of my lifetime. Um, and, uh, you know, it's exposing a, a bunch of a bunch of problems in the system, both in terms of the federal response and in terms of the lack of preparedness across the country. Um, you know, you never think these sorts of things can happen uh, in the developed world, let alone in America. Uh, and uh, it's it's touching every American. Uh, it's touching um, low-income communities in a particularly hard way, uh, communities that were already disproportionately impacted by underlying health conditions and lack of funding and air pollution and all the sorts of things that uh, exacerbate uh, are exacerbated by uh, COVID-19. Uh, you're seeing super high fatality rates in those communities uh, in Queens and Detroit and New Orleans. And it's really hitting communities of color um, in a disproportionate fashion as well. Uh, we don't know when it will stop. Um, some places believe if they've reached their peaks, uh, like New York City, but there are many, many, uh, there are many, many cities on the list, uh, Miami, Houston, uh, Chicago, elsewhere, uh, that are hoping to flatten the curve, but not quite sure that they're there uh, yet. Uh, projections have been uh, that 
uh, 100,000 or 200,000 Americans could die. Uh, we expect multiple waves of the crisis. Uh, and I think everybody's taking it day by day at this point, fearful for what the numbers will show tomorrow. Um, you're in San Francisco, California. What's been your on-the-ground experience, uh, in particular in the Bay Area, and the response from your local uh, authorities handling the pandemic and, broadly speaking, the state governor, Gary Newsom? So I think in, in California, uh, we were actually among the first to experience the crisis. Uh, the first cities hit were really the West Coast, ports to China, uh, where you see a lot of trans-Pacific travel. So uh, Seattle was was hit hard first, but uh, San Francisco uh, or the Bay Area in general was impacted shortly after that. Uh, we're lucky to have good city and state leadership. Um, and the mayor of San Francisco was one of the first nationally to act and say, uh, first to limit crowd events, and then secondly to issue a shelter in place on March 17th. So we've been sheltering in place for about uh, a month now, uh, and it's expected to go through at least the beginning of May. Uh, one of the neighboring counties uh, was one of the first to be greatly impacted by the virus. Uh, but the good news is um, we haven't seen all that many deaths here in San Francisco, which suggests that early action by the mayor and by the governor has had a positive impact and hospital beds are not yet overwhelmed. Uh, but uh, in New York and elsewhere, uh, where first cases were reported at similar times, um, we have seen the hospital system overwhelmed and uh, the Pentagon deploy uh, medical ships one to New York and one to Los Angeles that are usually uh, prepared to deploy into a conflict zone, uh, actually deployed domestically to help with coronavirus patients. So, um, you know, we've we've been lucky so far in the Bay Area, um, even though a number of people have been affected and we're holding our breath. But we think that that early intervention was was helpful in slowing the trajectory of the crisis here. Well, let's talk about um, early intervention and some, in some cases the lack thereof. The handling of this crisis by uh, Donald Trump and his administration from day one has been probably the best example of what not to do in a crisis. And I can't help but think back to the 2016 campaign where um, uh, Democratic uh, pundits and, and commentators were saying, is this the kind of person that you want to be uh, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in a moment of national crisis. And I know when we say that, we don't probably think deep down that a national crisis is going to occur in the span of four years. But of all the national crises, of all the global crises we could think of, this is probably the worst that we could think of. And for Donald Trump to be in the White House um, ch trying to show some leadership um, is must be completely mind-boggling for everyone to witness what's going on. And I wonder if... Uh, there was an article over the weekend in the New York Times outlining how much Trump knew about the potential threat uh, that Corona could pr uh, um, have on both the medical resources and also the economy and when he knew about it. Just for us, could you unpack uh, the timeline of 
um, what was known and the inability of Trump and his administration to act decisively that may have led um, your country, in particular places like New York and New Orleans, into um, the, the, the carnage that we're seeing right now across these hospitals and across these communities? Absolutely. I mean, look, Trump is an erratic leader. Uh, he doesn't trust career subject matter experts. He doesn't trust the intelligence community. Uh, and everything he does is political. So this crisis has played to his worst instincts, and many, many Americans are, are paying the price for it. Um, you know, the U.S. had its first patient, coronavirus patient, uh, at the end of January, and evidence of community spread uh, spread soon after that. But prior to that, the intelligence community and the National Security Council and others had been warning uh, the White House and President Trump himself about a significant threat coming from China, uh, with evidence that uh, China had suppressed the number of people who had the coronavirus in Wuhan, um, the, the demographics associated with it, the evidence of community spread, uh, and the high fatality rates that they experienced. And you had a number of administration officials, um, from uh, the China hawks to uh, folks um, who were responsible for intelligence coming out of China, raising a red flag. But every indication um, is that President Trump spent several weeks um, telling those individuals that they were being alarmist uh, and putting political concerns ahead of concerns about the spread of the virus. And so, um, you know, the first reason he gave was that the U.S. was in trade talks with China and they didn't want to do anything that disrupted that by reacting forcefully uh, to uh, the, the virus or putting out information about what was happening overseas. Um, and then secondly, that Trump was worried about his reelection. Um, you know, when the economy is in recession, presidents haven't tended to get uh, reelected. Uh, but the truth of the matter is if Trump had acted forcefully in January to do everything that needed to be done at the time, which included uh, securing supplies for um, the healthcare first responders who still are without masks and gloves and the ability to change those throughout the course of the day, um, to secure enough ventilators to ensure that every patient that was infected with the coronavirus in the country um, who went to the hospital um, would have the ability to stay alive and the best chance to fight for their life. Uh, now, weeks later, there's a bidding war between states and cities of um, who has the greatest purchasing power to acquire those supplies. And uh, the national stockpile, uh, we've been told by the president's son-in-law, uh, is simply for people who live in Washington, D.C., uh, which everyone assumes are, you know, the Trumps themselves and the people closest to them, when the national stockpile, which is called the national stockpile, was always supposed to be for the for the country and and the emergency. So, I mean, we saw weeks of of denial, of minimizing the scope of the problem, of saying that it was totally under control, of you know putting out Trump's economic advisors to say buy on the dip and this is a once in a lifetime investment opportunity. Um, all until the point that the bodies started piling up, 
Um, and then you saw a bit of a, a change in the daily press conference. Uh, but you can really see Trump continuing to struggle with this in a story every night saying, um, you know, the death toll has been terrible, but President Trump wants to reopen the economy as quickly as possible. And he may or may not listen to the advice of, of healthcare experts. And that's really been the theme all along is, you know, can those career healthcare experts who know exactly what to do here, can they break through to President Trump? Uh, Dr. Fauci, he's become a household name, I think, around uh, the United States and uh, certainly the English-speaking Western world, um, who's got a very interesting background that dates way back to the, uh, the early spread of the HIV uh, epidemic uh, and quite a, a, um, a respectable uh, medical expert. Uh, I, my heart goes out to him and his patience with trying to advise a narcissist like Donald Trump in such trying circumstances. Um, that guy should get a purple heart at the, at the, at the end of this um, uh, experience. I wanted to get a sense of, I mean, one of the, the, the multi-layers of challenges that exist with a pandemic, and the first thing is obviously to, to lock down the country. Um, the experience in Australia has been reasonably constructive. We have a, our prime minister, who is a conservative, has established a national cabinet with all the state premiers, which are a mix of both left and right um, political leanings. And they've tried to work in unison with each other to implement various stages of restrictions across the country. Um, but in the United States, I feel like this is a completely different experience um, and I wonder if it's a, if it's, is it a failure of American federalism or is it just poor leadership by Donald Trump in which you have instances, and I want you to sort of talk a bit more about this, about instances where it's patchy about the, the shutdowns. Like I was only watching TV last night and I think Alabama have now only started to bring in some form of restrictions. Uh, what's, what's, what's going on there? What's the problem on the ground? Well, there are a handful of, of elements of federalism that have come into play, but I think that most Democratic and Republican presidents would have recognized that, um, you know, their job is national security and homeland security. I mean, I can't think of a more important job for a president. And when incidents like this happen, both the prevention of it and response to it are led by the president of the United States. Um, and when we've seen divergence from that, uh, like the Bush administration trying to say they weren't responsible for the response to Hurricane Katrina, they've quickly corrected course and said, okay, this is a federal job. Um, and I think if you look at the history here, um, you know, the Obama administration had um, at the National Security Council a pandemic response team in place. There was an appointee in China um, to monitor for uh, the sorts of viruses that uh, we'd seen over the years, like SARS, to um, signal early warning signs um, that uh, the country needed to act quickly to prevent a pandemic. Um, President Trump dismantled those teams. Uh, President Bush was apparently obsessed with a book about the Spanish flu and the potential for recurrence of a pandemic in the U.S. and gave it to his Homeland Security to read advisor to read and say, prepare the government for something like this. So Trump just throwing up his arms and saying this is on the governors is a political tactic to cover for his poor response. But 
you know, I wouldn't blame that on how the government is set up. I, I, I think it's at his footsteps. That being said, you know, some partisan elements of the response, you know, Democratic governors and mayors were out front in ordering shutdowns and saying that the preservation of human life is the most important um, and that we all need to think about the people with underlying conditions and people who are older in this country. And we need to stay at home to protect them, um, even if, uh, you know, uh, even if we don't have underlying conditions ourselves. Um, the Republican states really lagged on that front, with the exception of a governor or two. Um, governor Mike DeWine in Ohio has been responsible. Um, he's got a strong healthcare system in his state led by the Cleveland Clinic, and I think they were whispering in his ear. Um, but uh, Republican-controlled states in the American South have really been a tragedy here. You know, Florida went ahead with spring break, mm. and thousands of people were on beaches at the height of the crisis. And you're now seeing the curve in the state of Florida go way, way up in terms of new cases and in terms of fatalities. And so, um, you know, those were Republican governors who were listening to President Trump saying they didn't want to shut down their economies, um, not taking the advice of the public health care experts in their states. And in the weeks ahead, they're going to pay a very, very steep price for that. Yeah, that's the concerning thing is that there was a map I saw um, – <laughs> The New York Times have been very good at producing a lot of maps. It's getting a bit map crazy at the moment. But there was one particular one that had shown uh, they'd got all the data from all the mobile phone companies across the United States and were tracking uh, the movement of all of those mobile phones. And at what point did they stop effectively moving, say, five miles from their home or from a, from a location? Uh, and right across the United States um, by late March, most most citizens across the United States had started to restrict their mobility. Um, but there was a red flag literally across all of the southern states um, from uh, East Texas right across to the, the Atlantic coast. Um, and it just looks concerning for, as you said before, what is going to happen in the next four or five weeks. Um, you know, as Washington State, New York, um, California sort of get over uh, this challenge is it going to flare up in, in the southern states, and then and then and, and this extends the problem for Trump because this is a, if this is a if, the, if this is not just a political problem for him, it's a health problem. And if he keeps on dealing it as a political problem, and all of a sudden his home base is now flaring up, I wonder what the implications are for him going forward. Thinking about November as well. I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? Well, right now, uh, you know, portions of the response are still being seen in. A partisan lens and, you know, remember, you know, Republicans get their information from certain news sources and Democrats get their information from certain news sources. So we do have a segmentation of the news sources that people are following. But in times of crises, people tend to rally around the president. And you saw a tiny uptick in Trump's numbers at the beginning of the crisis. Um, but they've really started to go down in the past couple of weeks. Um, not to the rock bottom of his presidency yet, uh, but I think there's a recognition as the press has come out of for how many months he ignored the crisis, how many people died or got sick as a result, uh, that he's mishandled this, that there was more that he can do, uh, that he put what his perception was 
uh, of the stock market ahead of human lives. Uh, and we lost human lives. And the stock market, by the way, didn't do particularly well either because mm. he didn't order sh a shutdown at any point. Uh, and and uh, certainly traders have seen um, the toll on human lives and he didn't set expectations in the right place. So it's been a, a total failure of leadership um, at every level. Will that break through to hardcore Trump voters? Uh, probably not. Uh, but will that sit with undecided um, heading into November um, who were still willing to give President Trump some space? It's certainly something that they're going to think about heading into November. Um, and, uh, you know, 16 million people are out of a job right now, too. That didn't have to happen um, if the administration had put a testing regime in place and containment regime in place at the very beginning of this. Um, that didn't lead to a national shutdown. But frankly, we're still waiting for those tests. Can we um, talk about the daily briefings for one moment? Um, it's like watching a car crash. I can't take my eyes off it, but I don't feel great about it after the experience. Um, how can you best summarize the daily briefings for those who have not seen them thus far that have been delivered by Donald Trump? Some go for 20 minutes, some go for two hours. Who knows what's going to happen? What's, what's your take on it, particularly given your background as a former spokesperson for the Obama campaign? Uh, how, how, how do you view these, uh, these daily briefings that he's doing? Well, it's, it's a reality distortion field and it's Trump's, um, Trump's goal is to create his own reality and his own reality for voters. And he's trying to reach people who don't read the New York times or the Washington post or follow political news, particularly closely. And he believes that if he just says, um, he's responded to this crisis in an aggressive and responsible fashion that people will believe it. Um, now, there is some concern that that could resonate with people because it's broadcast live by the cable networks for, as you said, sometimes two hours every day. So that's free airtime for his reelection campaign. A handful of reporters have uh, questioned him aggressively. Um, but he beats them down so publicly that, frankly, the response of the press has been generally to not be all that aggressive and, and to let him talk. And so um, I do believe it's on um, it's on Democrats, the Biden campaign and their allies to respond to these forcefully, to fact check them in real time, uh, to pressure the press to fact check them in real time. Um, and to make sure that uh, swing voters and undecided voters are seeing what the reality is here. Uh, we could have been South Korea. We could have been Germany. We could have had a real testing regime that was in place that never allowed the crisis to get to the point it has today when 20,000 have died and we're not at the stopping point. Mm. I mean, the short end of this seems like 60,000 Americans are going to die now. Um, but that history is being written today, and Donald Trump is trying every day with these press conferences to rewrite it. Yeah, he really is. It's breathtaking to watch. It's stunning to watch. I um I don't want to let off the fourth the the the, the journalists as easy as that. That's one thing that I myself and a couple of my sort of colleagues have been remarking on is how Trump has easily ran over the top of their questions. And I'm not even talking about just necessarily during this COVID-19 response. For the better part of three years, I've yet to see any of the journalists in the in the White House press pack 
really corner Trump into a position where he looks supremely uncomfortable. And I don't know whether it's a cultural thing in the United States. Um, side story here, a friend of mine uh, during the uh, Julia Gillard prime ministership, I think, I think Obama had come out to visit Australia. And there were some journalists, Australian journalists, there was a joint press conference between Obama and Gillard. And some Australian journalists were asking domestic questions of um, Prime Minister Gillard. And one of the American journalists turned to some of the Australian journalists privately and said, there is no way in hell we would ever ask such pointed questions of our leader in the way that you guys do in your press conferences. So maybe culturally there's a difference of the way that we conduct ourselves, but watching the way that Trump just talks over the top of these journalists in these press conferences, I don't know how they don't get up and punch him in the face. Uh, It would drive me insane. Like, don't be such a rude prick. Answer my question, you bastard. You know what I mean? Like, I'm I'm getting angry. I'm yelling at the (laughs) I'm yelling at the journalists. Go, just don't let him do that. Um, um, or, or why don't they band together and all of all of them agree? We're just going to ask him one question today, and if he doesn't answer my question, then you just ask the question. I don't know. It's yeah. Sort of, this is the I'm trying to apply a political lens to the work of uh, a journalist, which is probably the wrong way to look at it. But I just I'm getting frustrated. Yeah, I just, no, I I think they could be more aggressive, right? I mean, they've they've treated the Trump presidency like a normal presidency and like it's on the level. And there have been some good investigative stories behind the scenes. And you cited the Times story reconstructing Trump's delayed response earlier. The Washington Post did a great one as well. And I give them credit for that. Um, But I don't think President Trump would survive prime minister's questions very well. Um, And I think there is some need for the press um, when he denied the crisis or downplays the number of deaths or says he's doing everything for the states when he's not, um, to be more aggressive, especially when he tries to pack the room um, with some of these news networks that are just there to promote him. They're just partisan hacks, including his former press secretary who showed up as a quote-unquote reporter the other day. The only fake news in the briefing room is the people that Donald Trump puts there uh, who are partisans. And so I think the press could have less tolerance for that. I agree they they could band together to get some of the toughest questions answered. Um, and uh, they should never give in to, to his batterings. Uh, and, you know, I hope that's one of the big lessons coming out of this presidency is that uh, when it's not on a level, we shouldn't treat it like it is. There was a, um, another article, so it feels like I'm, all I'm doing at the moment is either reading the New York Times or the Washington Post at the moment, but there was another article I read last week or maybe early in the week, a weekend that there were several congressional and state Republican leaders who are publicly, and I, and I won't say criticizing, but they are certainly airing their concerns about the handling of the crisis and in particular President Trump's um, dealing with the crisis on a daily basis at these briefings. And even the Wall Street Journal had sort of chastised Trump's briefings. Uh, And these people actually were going on the record for a change. Are we starting to see a bit of uh, cracks appear in the, you know, team Republican um, of those that defend Trump, regardless of what's going on? Uh, Are we starting to see people starting to peel away from his uh, support amongst those elected You know, I, you know, only Mitt Romney defected on impeachment, which was obviously a very critical vote. 
I think that Mitch McConnell, uh, the Republican Senate Majority Leader, continues to be extremely well aligned with the White House, as does Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House. And as long as that alliance is there, I don't think we'll see scores of meaningful defections. I think a difficult quote here or there really doesn't result in much unless they're willing to vote against the administration. Where I do see uh, a handful of cracks are with Republican governors, um, people like Larry Hogan in Maryland or Charlie Baker in Massachusetts who are willing to criticize President Trump's response to the coronavirus crisis. But remember, those are small cracks because those are governors from deeply blue states mm. that happen to be able to get elected as Republican governors in those states. So I don't think um, it results in much of a movement. I think the only way to break Trumpism is at the polls in November. And even if he's defeated, he's left a lot of mini-me's in his image around the country. I mean, he still defines the modern Republican Party that he completely redefined. And his legacy is going to have a great impact on this country for a long time to come. Let's turn our attention to the presidential campaign in November. Um, For three years, Commentators have predicting the downfall of Donald Trump's presidency through the Mueller investigation, uh, his announcement of banning on Muslims ending the country, darker, you know, not kind of calling out the far right, then the impeachment. So many articles have been written, this is it, this is the one that Trump's going to get caught up on. Um, but if anything, he's like a chameleon, like the guy, it's like trying to pin shit to a wall. Um, and if anything, it probably solidifies his base. Um, and polarizes politics in the United States. And I think we talked a little bit about this last time when you were, in, when, when you were over in Melbourne. Um, and I read another article in early March saying when the coronavirus started to t- take hold in the United States, uh, this is it, this is the one, because Trump can't bully or shift blame or, or take scape- or scapegoat a virus, you know. Um, this transcends politics, this transcends boundaries. All of this is very, very, very true, but he still can shift blame. And we've witnessed that over the better part of the last month and a half. Um, are we going to see a shift in voter sentiment uh, towards Trump or rather against Trump as we look towards November because of this crisis? And, and, um, and with that, there's some polling that we might talk a little bit about as well that just came out from Mammoth Uni, which I flipped to beforehand, but uh, go ahead. You know, I, I, I think the I think the voters to follow there are independents and persuadable voters. I think Trump's hardcore base will be there until literally the end of the earth if it went up in a fiery volcanic blast. I don't think some of those voters, you know, probably 42, 43 percent are movable. Um, but they're also not the ones who are going to decide the election. The persuadable voters will. Um, look, I think going into this, the election was a 50-50 proposition. Um, you know, on the Democratic side, the good news is that Trump's approval rating never approached 50 percent his whole time in office, which puts him in the danger zone for an incumbent. Um, but incumbents always have a leg up in re-election campaigns. Uh, most of the time when we elect a president once and they're up for re-election, they get reelected unless something drastic happens. 
Um, I think many drastic things have happened under this presidency. <laughs> um, but two that the American people are really noticing right now are his botched response to the coronavirus crisis and also the massive unemployment and economic problems that we're facing. And to be clear, economists aren't predicting that if shelter in place is lifted in June or July, the economy will make a miraculous recovery. I mean, 16 million Americans have filed for unemployment, and a lot of those jobs aren't coming back. The Congressional Budget Office just projected that we're likely to face 9 or 10 percent unemployment in September of 2021, mm. you know, a year and a half from now. And so um, things aren't going to go back to normal. Um, certainly the economic crisis is linked to the coronavirus, uh, but um, we wouldn't have seen it if the administration had acted to put um, a testing regime in place um, that would have caught coronavirus patients coming back to the United States quarantine them and let most Americans continue about their daily lives. I mean, that's how we dealt with Ebola. Mm. Um, that's how we dealt with H1N1. Uh, we've implemented that playbook before and it worked. Um, polling released during the week suggested that we're seeing a buck in the trend of this sort of waning faith that Americans have in their institutions uh, and that during crisis as voters look to established institutions. So the the theory being that Trump has always posed himself as being the anti-establishment candidate or the anti-establishment leader, uh, yet now Americans are actually starting to look towards the establishment for hope and for answers and for support and for leadership. Um, I'm wondering if Trump's frame that he and he, the the the, um, the the campaign that he's built him the, the campaign he's built on, which is based around this being the anti-establishment person, is not going to work going into November when folks are actually now starting to think about. Oh no, we need to return back to the things that that we know and trust. Um, do you, do you feel that he, will he make an adjustment to that or will pick up on that? Or is that something that he's just going to ride all the way through to November regardless? I mean, I, you know, he, he's always had an explosive message and an explosive approach to government. Uh, that certainly ha hasn't helped him in the response to this crisis. And I don't think it will help him politically. And look, Americans may disagree on the role of the federal government in our lives, but I think there is agreement that the government exists to protect the safety and security of the American people. Um, and uh, because of the ways in which Trump eroded critical functions in the government, it didn't do that. I think it's also raised a lot of questions about income inequality uh, and the fact that communities of color are getting hit really hard low-income communities are getting hit really hard. Um, a lot of these folks had been impacted by underlying health conditions, and they're remaining extremely vulnerable uh, to the virus. Um, and they didn't have a primary health care provider to call when they first experienced the symptoms of the virus. So they're ending up in the emergency room, and they're getting to the hospital in the late phases of the virus impacting their bodies. And Americans are watching that on the news and saying something is wrong here. Uh, we need we need a better system that covers more people and and that's more responsive. Um, we need a federal government that is 
staffed with experts where experts are trusted and that there are mechanisms in place to detect this sort of thing and prevent it from happening again. So I do think there is, you know, a bit of, of rallying around institutions and it's not just partisan, you know, in the state of New York where governor Cuomo didn't have amazing approval ratings. Um, you know, he ran against the sex in the city actress, Cynthia Nixon, and she took a decent share of the vote. And I think people in New York are saying today, well, actually, I, I want Governor Cuomo. Yeah, you know, I, wa- I want uh, somebody who's been tested in office. You know, I, I don't just want to send a message to the system right now. I, I, I want competence and experience and, and functionality. 72% of Americans approve of the response by their state governors um, in a mammoth poll that was conducted uh, earlier this week. Um, Joe Biden, quickly, before we wrap up, given his uh, presumptive, um, well, essentially he's the candidate now without actually having the, the, the convention yet, but what does Joe do whilst there's this stay-at-home pl- uh, uh, lockdown in order going on, like it's hard to campaign? How does he appear relevant when it's really sort of uh, the main political leaders right now is Trump and the state governors who are trying to handle this pandemic? How does... How does Joe start to become relevant in this debate as we get closer to November? He's been on this and he's been on it early. So Joe Biden deserves credit for writing an op-ed in January in USA Today saying that President Trump is the worst possible person to have in office to manage a response to the coronavirus and laying out preventative steps he would take from. Uh, to ensure that the virus didn't become widespread in the United States. Biden's top advisor, Ron Klain, managed the response to the Ebola epidemic for the Obama administration. Um, And uh, he's been out there every day talking about steps that could be taken in response to the coronavirus crisis that haven't been taken. Biden's doing interviews every single day. Uh, the campaign built a TV studio in his house, so he's remaining in front of voters. A lot of his messaging has been about celebrating the first responders and the healthcare workers and the others who, um, you know, are really serving as the types of folks that the police and firefighters were uh, after 9/11. You know, they're they're the American heroes in this moment, and, and Biden's done a lot to celebrate them. He's also putting out substantive policy and plans uh, with a group of people who should be in office right now, subject matter experts. And he's not being partisan about it. He's actually saying, Trump White House, adopt this, adopt this tomorrow. Hmm. Uh, These are open sourced ideas. This is what we should be doing. And he wrote an op-ed in The New York Times today that outlined a plan to reopen the economy that was, again, led from the perspective of minimizing deaths, listening to healthcare experts. Um, so look, it, it, it's difficult to break through at the same level as President Trump because he doesn't get the two hours of free airtime and press conference every day. But the campaign's been innovative in terms of earned media, in terms of digital, about making sure he's out there each and every day. One area I'd like to see him more actively is banding together with Democratic governors who are leading the response a bit more because uh, they've done such a better job than the administration. But of course, you know, President Trump is always looking to punish anyone uh, that that is critical of him. And and I'm sure he'd do so if, um, you know, he perceived that that governors were doing anything 
to be associated with Biden right now. Yeah, that would literally break his brain, which would be funny to watch, but probably bad for those governors. Look, uh, Ben LeBolt, thank you very much for taking time out of uh, your weekend to talk to us today uh, about what's going on in your country. Uh, it's, I mean, it is really uh, depressing news to see what is happening to citizens in the United States. Um, and my heart goes out to uh, all of you guys, both Australia and the United States have had a very, very long and lasting uh, friendship across the Pacific. And so we wish you all the best. Um, we're not immune from this, obviously, um, but uh, I just really appreciate you taking the time out of you know, your day to talk to us a bit about what's going on. Uh, and we wish you and uh, your citizens the best of uh, luck for uh, the, the weeks and months to come. Appreciate it, Stephen. Same to the Australians and stay safe.